And now, Father, as we turn to your word, we ask that you will feed us with your word. We know that man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And we bless you, Lord, that you feed us with the body and blood of your Son, and you feed us with your word. Come and nourish our spirits, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. We have reached Joshua chapter 5, verse 13, in our meanderings through Joshua. And this is one of those stories that's probably um, not only a favorite, but uh, the most well-known stories of the Old Testament, the Battle of Jericho. Every self-respecting child from Sunday school knows the Battle of Jericho. Songs to go with it. So we're reading from Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. But it's the story that actually poses thinking Christians with questions, doesn't it? A lot of Christians of my acquaintance have problems with passages like this. Now, writes this author, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Make seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, make all the people give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the people will go up, everyone straight in. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant of the Lord and make seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the people, Advance! March around the city with the armed guard going ahead of the ark of the Lord. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets, and the ark of the Lord's covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the ark. All this time the trumpets were sounding. But Joshua had commanded the people, Do not give a war cry. Do not raise your voices. Do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout. Then shout. So he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling it once. Then the people returned to camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed guard went ahead of them, and the rear guard followed the ark of the Lord while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did this for six days. 
On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priests sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared, because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things, so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. When the trumpet sounded, the people shouted. And at the sound of the trumpet, when the people gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed so that every man charged straight in and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep and donkeys. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, Go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had gone, done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it, but they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her, because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho, and she lives among the Israelites to this day. At that time, Joshua pronounced this solemn oath, Cursed before the Lord is the man who undertakes to rebuild this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son will he lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest will he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout the land. And of course you know that Jesus walked into the city called Jericho, so you know it was rebuilt. 1 Kings 16 tells us when that happened, and the man who built it here built it at the cost of his youngest and his oldest son. Joshua's curse came true, the presumption of that man. But it's a story that inspires the children. We love it, don't we? They do a lot of acting and marching around and walls falling down and they fall collapsed outwards, by the way. If they collapsed inwards, you can't walk in on it because you end up with a pile of rubble. So they all fall outwards, which is very unusual, and they can walk in. We all know that story very well and sing songs to it and great, isn't it? But most people, as they grow out of childhood and into adolescence and adulthood and reflect on this story, have a problem with this, that the people of God, at the command of God, wipe out an entire city. You got a problem with that? Well, you wouldn't be the only one. Because somehow that doesn't sit nicely with the Lord we see in the New Testament. One little boy was asked, what's the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and he said, the New Testament is where God became a Christian. <laughs> and you know what he means, don't you? Because in the Old Testament, he seems to be a God with a frown on his face, who's looking hard at people, very rarely smiling. And suddenly it's all sweetness and light when we get to the New Testament. There seems to have been a change between Malachi and Matthew. But my friends, this is where it's critically important that you read your whole Bible 
as one. Because the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is the same God here. And if we lose that, the whole thing comes up for grabs. This is God. He is the same God yesterday, today and forever. So the God you find in the New Testament is the same God in the Old Testament. Is the God in the New Testament a loving, gracious God? Yes. Is the God in the Old Testament the same? Yes. He is slow to anger and abounding in love. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. That's Old Testament testimony, not New Testament. When John writes in 1 John 4, God is love, he's making that deduction on the basis of what we call the Old Testament. But you still have a problem with God wiping things out here, don't you? And this is why we have to keep our eye on the big picture, because what is God doing? We can read these stories as little Aesop's fables. So now, children, the lesson for the story is kind of way. Well, if we're going to treat the stories of the Bible like that, we might as well read Aesop's fables because they're not written that way. These are not given to give us morality lessons. They're to show us what God is doing in history. And from the beginning, right the way through to the end, God is working out a plan of salvation. Don't lose sight of that. This is God's plan of salvation. Well, you say to me, Charles, it doesn't look like that for the people of Jericho. It's anything but salvation. But you see, the other side of salvation is judgment, isn't it? You can't save some people without judgment. If God didn't care about sin, he wouldn't have to judge anyone. But if God didn't care about sin, he couldn't be the God he is, could he? He has to care about sin. He cares about sin so much that he gave his one and only son to save us from our sins. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all will come to a knowledge of faith and be saved. You've got to keep these things in picture. So what's happening here? Well, let me remind you what's happening here. You see, in the story of Abraham, God has said, Abraham, I'm going to take you and I'm going to bless you and through all the nations through you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed that is the story that God is working to here in Joshua and way back before Abraham, way back in Genesis 15, God had said to Abraham the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete in 400 years your descendants will come back to this land so this is 400 plus years later than God said, the sin of these people who live here is not yet complete. I'll give them time to repent. And he's given them since in our terminology before 1612 to repent. But they haven't. How much longer do they need? Do you get the point? This isn't God giving them... This, you ever heard these people stand on platforms and say, there is no God, because if there was a God, I could do, and they'd say something outrageous, and God would strike me down. And they arrogantly stand there and they say, see, there is no God. Have you ever heard people say that? That's not how God works. He does happen like that. Herod would testify to that. But that's not how it usually happens. 
God gives time for people to repent. He's given this nation 400 plus years to get their act together, and they haven't. And sin must be judged. Otherwise, God cannot be the God he is. Though he is slow to anger, he does get angry at sin, which destroys and distorts. So he's been waiting for 400 years, not only to bring the people into the land, but for these people to change their ways, but they have not. So this is God's judgment. Look at the way this story is put together. I read the whole chapter, even though you know it very well. I could have asked you and you could have got every question right. You'd have known how many times they went round and, and the priests were in front of the ark blowing their trumpets and there was an advanced guard and a rear guard and they went round once and you know all the facts about that. You knew it all, but I read it again because did you see how many times things were repeated? That is a storyteller's device to tell us that this story is important. If you want to slow the action down and draw people's attention to something, you repeat it. That's why preachers tell you what they're going to tell you, then they tell you, then they tell you what they told you, to tell you that it was important. That's why they do it. And it starts with God and finishes with God and God is right the way through it. Because there's... In fact, Joshua and the people have nothing to do with warfare here. Did you know that? They just walk around. They don't brandish a sword until the victory is complete. Then they do the clearing up. It's almost completely non-military as far as Joshua and his battle are concerned because this is God's battle. Do you see that? So Joshua is trying to work out how is he going to take this city because it's all tightly wrapped up. In those days you had kings of a city. You had the king of Hurstmanzu and the king of Hailsham and the king of Sussex and the king of Westmoreland and the king of the United Kingdom. You had kings over large areas and kings over very small areas. You had the king of Jericho. Now he's thinking, how am I going to do this? And he suddenly has a vision of a man. Now... In light of the fact that the ground he stands on is therefore holy, there's only one person who makes ground holy, and that is God himself. So it can't be an angel, because he falls down and worships him. And if he'd done that to an angel, the angel would say, Get up! Don't you worship me. So it must be a theophany, that's what the theologians call it, a, a manifestation of God, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, commander of the Lord's armies. It's done mysteriously, but that's the purpose of it. Anyway, he has this vision, this manifestation of Jesus. And he said, of course, he says, whose side are you on? That's the question we always ask, isn't it? Whose side are you on? Notice the reply, neither. The question to you, Joshua, is whose side are you on? That's the question we have to answer. So often we say to God, whose side are you on? And God could easily reverse it and say, no, no, whose side are you on? Mine or the enemy?" And immediately Joshua then worships and says, what would you like me to do then? And the responsibility is given back over to God. That's how things always should be, shouldn't it? It's God's business. This is God's battle. This is not Joshua's battle. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Poppycock. He didn't, did he? God fought the battle of Jericho. Didn't he? Joshua just did a lot of walking round. Obeying God. I don't want to diminish what he said, my friends, but he didn't fight the battle of Jericho in the normal way. He fought it in the unusual way. 
And then God tells him what to do. And then Joshua tells the priests what to do. And then they do it. And we're told those three things. You see? God tells him, Joshua tells them, and then they go and do it. Three times we're told what they do. To get this message over. It is not your strategy. This is what I want to do. Because I am bringing salvation to the world. And salvation and judgment are two sides of the same coin. And you're going to say to me again, there doesn't seem to be much salvation here, Charles. Oh yes, there is. Her name is Rahab. Did you notice her? Three times we're told that Rahab is rescued here again. Notice it? Three times. Because this is salvation. What's Rahab's qualification for getting special treatment? It's simply this. She throws herself on the mercy of God. When the spies go to leave, she says, we know the future is in God's hands, so please remember me when you come into your kingdom. She could have said like the, priest, like the prisoner who was by the side of Jesus, but she doesn't use those words. She simply says, have mercy, remember me. She throws herself on the mercy of God. And what's God's response? Ha, you've had long enough? No chance? No. The response is, that's fine. Not only you, but all your family can be saved on the basis of this woman's faith. And because the men keep their oath to her. There's salvation here. The tantalizing question is, if her neighbors had done the same thing, would they have been saved? The answer is a very resounding yes, they would have been. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Isn't that true? It's just it was only Rahab and we have to weep with the tragedy of it, don't we? And say, so many people need not have died that day. If only they called on the name of the Lord. And centuries later, a man would look over Jerusalem and weep because they don't recognize the time of his coming. And he knows that so many thousands are going to die. Because they're not calling on the name of the Lord. And don't you weep over your neighbors and friends when they go through what they go through and there's no need to. If they were to call on the name of the Lord, they could be saved. This is not pie in the sky. This is spiritual reality. So there is judgment here. But there is salvation too. And the people who suffer, suffer because it is their choice. They don't need to. What makes Rahab any different from any of the others is that she got an eye to see where the future lies. She's heard the same messages. She says, we're all melting with fear. Everyone's heard the same as she has. The difference is she's responding to it. She says, if this is true... I'm in the wrong place. I need to change where I am. I need to head over towards the one who has destiny in his hands. So they march round, and this calls for great restraint on the part of the Israelites. Because you see, this is not just them getting the others. See, what God is doing, in the beginning it was God made the earth and everything in it, and it all still belongs to him. Don't, remember, don't forget that. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. 
And he made mankind to live on the earth with God and all these wonderful relationships. They were wonderful until we sinned and they all broke down. So what God is doing now, instead of doing things on a macro scale, he's doing it on a minor scale. Instead of God and the whole earth, he's choosing one particular country within the whole earth, a land of promise. And instead of all the nations of the world, he's chosen one nation of the world called the Jews. And the idea behind that is not that the Jews are special and nobody else is and they can go hang, but that through them, the blessing of God will get to everybody. So he's chosen a small example in the hope that the way the Jews live in his image and likeness, in the land that he's given to them, will be so winsome, so glorious, so wonderful, that people will queue up to say, we don't know what it is, but please tell us more about it because we love the way you live. We love the way it is. Will you tell us what's the secret? The Queen of Sheba did that, didn't she? She came all the way from Sheba to Solomon to say, I've heard these glorious stories and I could hardly believe them, but they're only half true. It's amazing. That was the purpose. My friends, we are meant to live such attractive lives that people will say, what is it about you people? Whatever it is, I want it. No, let's be realistic, they won't all say that, but some will. Yet, I have to say, I have stood outside some churches in my life and looked at the people coming out thinking, well, if I wasn't a Christian, nothing about their faces would want me to make me become a Christian, actually. I could do without whatever they've done for the last hour and a half. But they're the exception, aren't they? Aren't our lives meant to be so full of God? Not Cheshire Cheshire cat grins, my friends, but so full of God that somehow or other we are so winsome that people are drawn to us. Do you know people like that? You just love their company. There are the other people who you try and avoid if you see them in the street. You know, those sort of people. You don't, I haven't got time for this. I haven't got the energy for that. People who suck it all out of you and you feel drained at the end of it. But are you know people who just make you feel good? You're just glad to be with them? In one of our pastorates, there was an old couple. They were in their 80s then and they never ever came to church. By this time, they were housebound. Dick and Lily, their names were, never had had children lived in the town all their lives, and I never went to visit them, but there was a string of people coming through their doors, and you never went out without a smile on your face. It was riotous. They were cracking jokes all the time. This was a couple who couldn't get out of their home, who were entirely housebound, who were ill. To visit them was a tonic. Dick once told me he did stagger to the end of his garden because he wanted to clear out his cold frame. His garden was about 60 yards long. A, no, 60 feet long. So he went down the garden to his cold frame. This is in uh, March when it's cold. He wanted to clear it out. And he fell into the cold frame on his back with his hands and his legs. So he said, I was like an upside-down beetle, he said. And he's laughing as he's telling me. I couldn't get out. He said, I was laying there with my legs and hands going like this, like an upside-down beetle. And he's laughing. He's telling me, my friends, this is serious. It's in March. If he doesn't get out of here, he's going to die of hypothermia. But he's telling me as if it's a big joke. 
with tears rolling down his face. And eventually someone went by and heard him and came and rescued him and so forth. But he, their attitude was one of such joy and delight. They're not, I'm not pretending that bad things don't happen, but something about them drew people in. They never had to say, please come and visit me. There was always people coming in and going out all the time because, to be honest, you wanted to go and visit them. Something about our lives is meant to be so attractive that other people say, whatever it is, I want something of it. Could you help me understand it? That's what it's all about. That's what's meant to happen. But for that to happen, God's got to take out the idolatry that's happening in the land of promise. These are wicked people. These people in Canaan who are going to get wiped out with Jericho, do you know what they do? They offer their children as living sacrifices to the gods and kill their children in idolatry. Can you believe that? Would you? Well, they did. And plenty of other unspeakable things I'm not even going to list before you because I don't want to depress you. But that's the kind of thing they were up to. God wants nothing more to do with it. It's going to be out. It's going to be judged. That land has got to be cleansed. And there's only one way. Either they call on the name of the Lord or they're out. And that's what's happening here. So before you get too quick to judge God as a vicious God, he's doing something that really needs to be done. And my friends, one day that's going to happen on a worldwide scale. The earth is going to be cleansed from all its wickedness and sin and given back as a place it always ought to have been, us to live on. So this story is not just about a nice little story to tell children. This is a miraculous story of God's intention and it's told in great detail to tell us that that's how God is going to do it. This is not Joshua dreaming up military escapades. This is Joshua acting on God's behalf. Now we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, Paul tells us in the Ephesians. Our battle is not physical anymore because we don't have a land like that. Our one is against the enemy of our souls. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. But it's God's battle and we do it his way. So we are in warfare and Christian discipleship is very many things and being a soldier is one of the imageries, images that we are to use. So this is a physical illustration of what is true spiritually for us too. We live in occupied territory as it were, but it belongs to God. But our task is not, as it were, to wipe out the flesh and blood people, but to speak against the principalities and powers and to rescue the Rahabs of this world. That's our task. To rescue the Rahabs. To present to them the truth that they can make an informed choice and say, I want this and can be saved. Rahab then, this prostitute with a very poor background, not only is rescued here, but she becomes an ancestor of Jesus. She marries a guy called Salmon. They have a son or a grandson called Boaz. And Boaz will appear in the book of Ruth as a gem of a man. And they will appear in the genealogy of Jesus. Normally you don't put any women in your genealogy. 
Rahab and three other women are mentioned in Jesus' genealogy and they all have unsavoury backgrounds. But Jesus is not afraid to include the skeletons in his cupboard in his genealogy. This woman becomes an ancestor of Jesus. And twice in the New Testament she's lifted up as an example of what faith looks like. Someone who says something and acts accordingly. Both the writer to the Hebrews says, this is the kind of faith you want to look at. And James says, you want to know what faith looks like? Well, Rahab's a good example. Abraham on one side, the great mountainous man of faith, and Rahab on the other. Show us what faith looks like, which is putting it into practice. Great story, isn't it? Great story. So don't judge God too quickly here. Because sin's got to be judged. But the gospel is all about. It doesn't have to be judged by us. But in Christ. Let me pray. So Father it's very appropriate we should celebrate communion this morning. As we remember this event from the book of Joshua. That the communion service reminds us Lord if ever we needed it. That you are a gracious and compassionate God who is slow to anger and abounding in love who doesn't desire the death of any but rather that they might live who sent his son into the world not to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved so these things Lord are weighty matters for us to reflect on on a Sunday morning. And we're so glad, Lord, that our eyes have been opened by your Spirit to see the truth and to be set free, that we sit here as those who are in the people of God. Help us to live to your glory, Lord. And as this week unfolds as it will, in one way or another, we ask that you, filling us with your Spirit, will help us to live lives that in some way or other direct others' attention to you, that they may see what we do and give glory to God, that somehow, Lord, the way we confront the issues of life, the ups and downs, the way we deal with the difficulties of life, will commend you to others. We won't be able to make it on our own, Lord. We need your help moment by moment. So will we experience, Father, each one of us, your strength and grace to the glory of your name. Amen.